hear from Psalm 84. For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah, how lovely are thy dwelling places, O Lord of hosts. My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. The bird also has found a house, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even thine altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, how blessed are those who dwell in thy house. They are ever praising thee. How blessed is the man whose strength is in thee, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. Passing through the valley of Baca, they made it a spring. The early rain also covers it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them appears before God and Zion. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, and look upon the face of thine anointed. For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand outside. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in thee. Amen. So there, Psalm 84, in the middle of book 3 of the Psalms. And we'll be looking today at two psalms that are the bookends of book 3. Psalm 73, coming at the beginning of the book. And Psalm 89, coming at the end of the book. And as we read these psalms and look at their features, we'll see a number of different perspectives. Different outlooks that the psalmists have. We'll see perspectives on the prosperity of the wicked, perspectives on God's goodness when we're suffering, perspectives on God's promises when they appear to perhaps be broken, and then different perspectives on our lot in life or our circumstances. And interestingly, in both of these psalms, the psalmist's perspective changes midway through the psalm. In one case, the psalmist's position is a very good one, initially, and for reasons that will become clear later, we'll see that his outlook changes significantly, but not really in a good way. And then in the other case, the psalmist's initial position is the wrong one. Yet, midway through, his outlook also changes significantly, both very much for his and for our good. So because of the way that these two psalms are structured, we're going to do it a bit differently. We're going to look at the first half of Psalm 73, the psalmist's initial position. Then we'll go and look at the first half of Psalm 89 to see that psalmist's initial position. Then we'll come back and look at the second half of 73 and then the second half of 89, looking at the way that their perspective has changed. Also, by the time we're done, we also want to consider how it is that the Lord Jesus might lead us in praying or singing these two psalms, as we've done in previous weeks as well. And so we want to consider Jesus' perspectives on these things. And then, somewhere in the midst of all this, we might also need to have a little bit of a, of a history refresher or recap on the how and the why of the Babylonian captivity. And I know you'll all be excited to hear that. Because really, this third book of the Psalms, as one of the commentators, Christopher Ashe, says, it, quote, smells of exile, end quote. While the majority of book one and book two of the Psalms are dominated by Psalms of David, here in book three, kind of the perspective, I keep using that word, but the perspective changes. Um, so many of these Psalms in book three seem to be written during that time of the exile, focusing on a very dark and difficult period in Israel's history. So we'll need to look at that a little bit. And then finally, before we get started uh, really into the psalm, just a very brief word about the authors of these two psalms. Um, I don't have as much to say about them as I did last week. Perhaps their case is not as interesting as the sons of Korah, um, but Psalm 73 is authored by a man named Asaph, and Psalm 89 is authored by a man named Ethan. Now, both of these men share things in common with each other, 
and in common with the sons of Korah, which we learned about last week, um, because both of these men, Asaph and Ethan, were also Levites. They were also leaders of these temple choirs that David had organized when he was king. And in fact, Asaph has a number of psalms that he's written. Um, Again, we don't know how many in total, but we have 12 in the psalms that are written by him. And then Psalm 89 is the only one that we have that's ascribed to this man named Ethan. So, Psalm 73. I'll read the first 14 verses. A psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as are other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. So, four little parts or segments of this first half of the psalm. Let's look at each of them briefly. First of all, the fact of God's goodness. Verse 1 begins with this word, surely. And this word appears again in verse 13 and in verse 18. I think Asaph is purposefully emphasizing that there are several things that he knows without a doubt to be true. Although we may find later on that one of these things that he seems so sure about is actually not correct. But here in verse 1, obviously Asaph is certainly correct. For he says, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. We know that God's attribute or perfection of goodness is seen uh, very clearly throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, and of course we see God's goodness in our own lives and experience. We know that our God is good. And yet, sometimes I wonder, it might be difficult to see, because is, is His goodness always clearly seen in our own lives? It's interesting that despite this very certain declaration that Asaph makes in the first verse, he immediately descends into doubt right after this. Because we see that his initial perspective or his outlook on life, which begins in the next verse, is actually a crisis of faith. Because in these verses, verses 2 and 3, he describes in very vivid imagery of feet stumbling or slipping. This is the way that he is looking at himself. And the reason for his stumbling and slipping, he gives in verse 3, he was envious of the arrogant as he looked at the prosperity of the wicked. Now, I think this is a profound admission that Asaph makes. Because while you and I might have had occasion to be envious, to privately confess in our own prayer of confession to God, we might confess that we've been envious of how successful others are. Yet I doubt that if any of us were songwriters, we would actually write that into the lyrics of the song to be publicly performed in front of others. Asaph is really exposing some very dark and private things for us. Because really, to be envious of another person's success, especially someone that's godless, the wicked as he describes them, I think that is a dark place to be because I think implicitly it is questioning God's goodness. Because envy says, look at how his career has bypassed mine. Or look at how her children are so good at everything. Or look at how, just fill in the blank. 
If you've never had these thoughts before, bless you. I know that I have. And this is where Asaph is. He's basically saying, why am I not experiencing the blessing that these people are? Why would God bless them like that? Why am I not experiencing such goodness? And so then he goes on in the next section, uh, verses 4 through 12, to talk about the character and the conduct of these prosperous, godless people. Verse 4, he says that they live a life that's full of contentment, and then even in their death, they die without suffering or pain. Verse 5, he says they never seem to be in trouble or in sickness the way that everybody else is. And then verse 6, he says, as a result of this, and I suppose understandably so, they're proud. Verses 7 through 9, it says that because of their success and prosperity, they're mocking others that are on the earth who perhaps are not as well off as they are. And then I think they certainly feel no need for God. Why would they when things are going so well? And so it says that they also set their mouth against the heavens. And then verse 10 through 12, he says they're always at ease, just increasing their wealth even suggesting, I think, that their lives are beyond scrutiny, saying that, does God even know? Does God even know the things that I'm doing? Does He even have the ability to know about my proud and selfish conduct? This is how Asaph sees the way that these godless men are living. And then next, in verses 13 and 14, Because of his crisis of faith, because of what he sees and the arrogant wicked around him, he laments something very disturbing. Although, again, we may have had similar thoughts. He suggests that perhaps his good conduct and his good character, that is, his clean hands and his pure heart, they might have been in vain. He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands and innocence. I think he's thinking that maybe his submission to God's rule and will in his life have been for nothing, because what has been the result of his clean hands and his pure heart? Well, he says that he's been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. He looks around and sees the success of these godless people around him, and he comes to this conclusion for himself. What's the point of me maintaining my clean hands and pure heart if God is not going to bless me for it? Now, you should recognize that this is straight-up retribution theology, very much like what we see in the book of Job. In fact, if you remember from our survey of Job last year, Job made this very same complaint, that perhaps he was being blameless and upright for no reason or that he was doing these things in vain. And I think as we saw in that survey of Job, behind that theology of retribution is the false idea that our relationship with God is simply a matter of inputs and outputs. That if I would put in righteousness, then God will bless me. But if I put in sin, then I'm going to receive God's curse. Now we know that Scripture does teach the principle of retribution. And I know we see this in our own lives, the idea that we reap what we sow. But one of the main lessons from the book of Job is that retributive justice is not the governing principle by which God has ordered the cosmos. His plans and purposes and interactions with His people, they're not that simplistic. His ways are not our ways, and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And of course, God brought that lesson home to Job in a powerful way. But I think this is the kind of thinking that Asaph is engaged in right now. His outlook on his current situation has caused him to fall victim to this wrong-headed idea that if all I'm going to receive from God is difficulty and pain, then why should I bother with faithfulness and holiness? We should recognize that this is a very dark place for Asaph to be. It's the wrong place for Asaph to be. But this is where he is. Now turn over to Psalm 89. 
and we'll look at Ethan's initial perspective. This is a longer text. I'm going to read all of it, verses 1 through 37 of Psalm 89. A mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations I will make known thy faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said, loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens thou wilt establish thy faithfulness. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And the heavens will praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies is comparable to the Lord? Who among the sons of the mighty is like the Lord, a God greatly feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all those who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is like thee, O mighty Lord? Thy faithfulness also surrounds thee. Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. Thou thyself didst crush Rahab like one who was slain. Thou didst scatter thine enemies with thy mighty arm. The heavens are thine, the earth also is thine, the world and all it contains, thou hast founded them. The north and the south, thou hast created them. Tabor and Hermon shout for joy at thy name. Thou hast a strong arm, thy hand is mighty, thy right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. O Lord, they walk in the light of thy countenance. In thy name they rejoice all the day. And by thy righteousness they are exalted. For thou art the glory of their strength, and by thy favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. Once thou didst speak in vision to thy godly ones, and didst say, I have given help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. With whom my hand will be established, my arm also will strengthen him. The enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. But I shall crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. And my faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in my name his horn will be exalted. I shall also set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He will cry to me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will visit their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever." And his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witness in the sky is faithful. Now, what a difference perspective makes. These 37 verses are glorious. Ethan is recounting God's covenant with David, which, as I noted in the first week of our survey, is the covenant that I think receives the most attention in the Psalms. And so we're going to break this down. Again, we're just going to hit the highlights into three parts. But first, a couple of things to watch out for. First of all, we need to notice the voice. Who is it that's speaking? There's a number of places in this text where there's quotation marks. You may have noticed this. Sometimes Ethan seems to be quoting himself, saying, I say this. Sometimes Ethan is quoting God, saying, God says this. Sometimes it's God in the first person. The quotation marks are around what God himself directly addressing us is saying. So we'll need to watch for who is it that's actually speaking. And then secondly, just notice the words that are repeated. And this, of course, should come to no surprise to us 
especially if any of you were here last week for our first and only Hebrew lesson where we learned the Hebrew word hesed as it's translated in the NAS loving kindness or in the ESV steadfast love. This is the covenant love for his people to which God has obligated himself. And this word occurs seven times in this psalm. Now that might be accidental, but I like to think that maybe Ethan did this purposefully, understanding that the number seven in Scripture is a number of completion, even a number of perfection. Another Hebrew word translated faithfulness also occurs seven times in this psalm. And many times these two words, loving kindness and faithfulness, go together. You'll find them in the same verse in this psalm. And then finally, the Hebrew word for covenant occurs three times. And so what's happening? I think that clearly Ethan is driving at something. He is, I think, repeatedly reinforcing God's covenant-keeping love and faithfulness, not only generically to God's people, but specifically to his son, his king, David, and to David's seed. So, a few highlights from this half of this psalm. First of all, verses 1 through 4, the faithfulness of God, and in particular, God's faithfulness to his covenant with David. We hear Ethan's voice, first of all, in verse 1 and 2, and then God's voice addresses us in verse 3 and 4, I think simply reiterating the promise that God had made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that he would establish an eternal reign, an eternal throne for David and David's seed. The next section, verses 5 through 18, tells us about the majesty of God. A number of ways, again, we'll just hit the highlights. First of all, verse 6 through 8, focus on the fact that there's no other like God. There is none like God. Verse 9 and 10 focus on God's power over his enemies. And notice the language, the imagery that's used. He says in verse 9, Thou dost rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, thou dost still them. Thou thyself didst crush Rahab like one who is slain. We should realize that often in Scripture, the sea stands for the chaotic forces of evil this place where these symbolic monsters Rahab or sometimes Leviathan live. We see this same kind of imagery in Psalm 65 and 107, but I think the point that Ethan is making is that God is in control over these dark forces. And then verses 14 through 18, I think contains some of perhaps the sunniest and most encouraging language in all the Psalms. Look at what they're telling us. Verse 14 tells us that the foundation of God's rule is loving kindness, I'm sorry, is righteousness and justice. This means that everything that God does is right. Everything that God has done in history, everything that God does in our own lives, it's the right thing. It might not be from our perspective, but it is from God's perspective. His sovereign actions are always right. God never gets it wrong. Secondly, it says that loving kindness and truth go before him. And as a result of that, it says that God's people are blessed as they enjoy the light of his face. It also says in verse 16 that God's people rejoice in God's name, which if you recall from last week from Exodus uh, 34, to rejoice in God's name is also to rejoice in God's person and his character. And then in verse 17 and 18, it reminds us that God's favor rests on his people in such a way that they receive power and strength and protection under the rule of their king. So already, I think we can say that Ethan's perspective is very different from what Asaph's was. And then the, the rest of this half of the psalm, verses 19 through 37, it returns specifically to this covenant with David. And again, I just want us to notice the repeated words. Notice these words that Ethan is using in verse 20 and 21, establish. Verse 24, loving kindness and faithfulness. Verse 28, again, loving kindness and then covenant and forever. Verse 29, we have establish again and again forever. Forever. 
Verse 33 and 34, again, loving kindness, faithfulness, and again, covenant. And then verse 35 through 37, we have sworn, I will not lie. Again, we have established and forever. So Ethan is also trying to make a point here. Also God, when he is directly speaking here, I think is emphasizing the certainty of his work in establishing the throne of David forever. So, ultimately, I think that Ethan is showing us that he has every reason to trust in God's faithfulness. How many more reasons do we need? He's given us every reason to trust, not only in his faithfulness, but in God's goodness to keep his promises. So this is Ethan's initial perspective. Now turn back to Psalm 73. We'll look at the second half and see how Asaph's position changes. Verses 15 through 28. Asaph says this, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I should have betrayed the generation of thy children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely thou dost set them in slippery places, thou dost cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, thou wilt despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast taken hold of my right hand. With thy counsel thou wilt guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from thee will perish. Thou hast destroyed all those who are unfaithful to thee. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all thy works. So, first of all, verses 15 and 16, Asaph makes an admission. And I think his admission tells us two things. I think he realized the danger that he was in, given the initial perspective that he had. It was a dark place, as we saw. But I think God was gracious to give Asaph the wisdom to know that his thinking wasn't right. And of course, he wanted to puzzle this out in verse 16, he says. He wanted to rightly understand how he could look at the prosperity of the wicked and then look at his own life and understand how do I reconcile this. But it's a difficult thing to puzzle out, and he says he found it a wearisome thing to do. And then secondly, I think he understood his position as a leader among the people of God. He was a leader in this temple choir, a music leader for God's people. So verse 15 says that if he had spoken thus, he would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, what is he saying? Well, think about that in our context. Think about that in our little church. Could you imagine our music leader, your friend and mine, Kyle Rowland, if he wrote a song about the prosperity of the wicked and then within the lyrics of that song, if he came to the conclusion that it was vain for us to live in faithfulness and holiness. And then imagine if he led us in that song in the chapel, you hear those lyrics, you want to cover your children's ears, don't listen to this. It would be a betrayal. I think that's what Asaph is saying, is that if his psalm had ended at verse 14, if that had been the final word, it would have been a betrayal, given his role in leading worship for the people of God. And then in verse 17 and 18, his perspective begins to change. He has a realization. And again, two things to notice. First, he's come to understand that the prosperity of the wicked will be short-lived. 
This is a sobering reality because Asaph now is beginning to discern the end or the result of what their lives will be. He says, God will set them in slippery places and God makes them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now really, I think words like that should be disconcerting to us. Really because they're true. And they're not only true for the really wicked people out there, these verses are also describing the default condition for every man, woman, and child that persists in unbelief. In fact, Moses says something very similar in Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, he says, speaking of the wicked, their foot shall slide in due time. And it was that verse in Deuteronomy and this verse, Psalm 73, 18, that were actually the basis of the exposition for Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Speaking of Psalm 73, 18, Edwards says this and very early in his sermon. He says, they, that is the wicked, are always exposed to sudden unexpected destruction. As he that walks in slippery places is every moment liable to fall, he cannot foresee one moment whether he shall stand or fall the next. And when he does fall, he falls at once without warning. Again, these should be disconcerting to us, especially if you haven't come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith for forgiveness of your sin. If you haven't, you're walking in a very slippery place. And Asaph has realized what will happen if this person should fall. And then how did he come to this new understanding? In verse 17 he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God. So Asaph's understanding or perspective changed when he went to worship. Maybe he went to the temple, maybe he went to a local altar wherever he was, but his perspective changed when he went to worship. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly what happened, but Maybe we could imagine that when he went to worship, perhaps he was confronted with God's holiness. Perhaps he was also confronted with God's justice. And when you couple God's holiness with God's justice, you necessarily have God's determination to not leave the guilty unpunished. And so Asaph realizes that this is the fate of the wicked. And not surprisingly, in verse 21 and 22, he makes a confession now that he realizes how wrong his thinking has been. He confesses really that he was like an animal, like a beast, without reason and without knowledge. He was being no better than a beast. And then he concludes the psalm, uh, verse 23 through 28, affirming three things. First of all, he affirms his faith in God. Whatever doubt he was grappling with, now the clouds have cleared and he knows that he is with and he is near to God. God has taken his right hand, as it were, and will not only lead him in this life, but in the life to come. He also affirms uh, in verse 26 that God is all that Asaph has and that God is actually Asaph's only desire. And in these famous words, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now again, if we only read that verse of the psalm, I think it doesn't mean quite as much as it really should if we don't know where Asaph was at the beginning of the psalm. Because this is a very significant reversal, I think. Um, he was earlier lamenting being chastened and stricken all day long, which in some ways could be imagining his body failing, his heart failing. And now he says, even if my body and my heart do fail, he knows that God is his strength and his portion forever. And then finally, verse 28, as for me, the nearness of God is my good. So now he's come full circle. The first verse of the psalm, he talks about God being good. And now he says that God's nearness to him is Asaph's good. And so again, think about the reversal. 
Initially, he wasn't seeing good things in his own life. He was seeing them in others' lives, not in his own. And now he says that really maybe the good things in my own life don't really matter, but it's the fact that God is near to me. That will be my good, whether or not I'm experiencing blessing or not, whether or not I'm being stricken or chastened, or my body or heart might be failing. Turn back to 89. We'll look at Ethan's changed perspective. Verses 38 through 52. But thou hast cast off and rejected. Thou hast been full of wrath against thine anointed. Thou hast spurned the covenant of thy servant. Thou hast profaned his crown in the dust. Thou hast broken down all his walls. Thou hast brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass along the way plunder him. He has become a reproach to his neighbors. Thou hast exalted the right hand of his adversaries. Thou hast made all his enemies rejoice. Let us also turn back the edge of the sword, and hast not made him stand in battle. Thou hast made his splendor to cease, and cast his throne to the ground. Thou hast shortened the days of his youth. Thou hast covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will thou hide thyself forever? Will thy wrath burn like fire? Remember what my life is, for what vanity thou hast created all the sons of men. What man can live and not see death? Can he deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Where are thy former loving kindnesses, O Lord, which thou didst swear to David in thy faithfulness? Remember, O Lord, the reproach of thy servants, how I do bear in my bosom the reproach of the many peoples with which thine enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of thine anointed. And then I think verse 52 is really the concluding verse to all of book 3, not just to Psalm 89. Perhaps an editor added this later. It says, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So again, quite the reversal from Ethan's initial perspective to what he is saying now. The first half of his psalm, again, was glorying in God's faithfulness. But look at how he's struggling now. Listen to the verbs. These are the things that Ethan says God has done. Cast off, rejected, spurned, profaned, broken, brought to ruin, cast to the ground, turned back, shortened, and ceased. And then what about the objects of those verbs? To who or to what are the things that God has done this to? God's anointed, his covenant, his crown, his walls and stronghold, his splendor, and his throne. What could have caused this change in Ethan's outlook? What in the world could have happened to lead him from where he was to where he is now, seemingly saying that God's promises appear to be broken? Well, this is where we need a little history refresher. We might already all know this, but indulge me. We need to remember what the Babylonian captivity was all about. Because we realize that ultimately it was God's judgment against his own people. Because sadly, it didn't take very long after the glory days of King David and King Solomon for the nation of Israel to fall into sin and unbelief. After the division of the kingdom under Solomon's foolish son Rehoboam, the nation of Judah was generally in decline, having far more bad kings than good kings. And even for all the good work that faithful men like Jehoshaphat or Josiah or Hezekiah did, their work really seemed to be kind of undone by the faithless kings like Jehoram, Uzziah, and Manasseh. And so, again, we realize it was the burden of many of the Old Testament prophets to call God's people back to repentance, to call them back to faithfulness. But during this period of their history, so long as God's vice-regent on the earth, the king, was not walking in faithfulness, it was really going to be a losing battle. Because as goes the king, so goes the nation. And so we're familiar with the prophet Habakkuk's lament in this context when he said, How long, O Lord? That is, how long are you going to allow your people to live in sin, in unrepentant sin? 
And we also know the answer that God gave to Habakkuk. It was an answer that was actually far worse than Habakkuk could have imagined. Saying that, yes, Habakkuk, I am going to bring judgment, but I'm going to do it in a way that you would have never thought. I'm going to do it with this pagan nation, the Chaldeans, Babylon. And then shortly this did occur. Nebuchadnezzar's armies laid siege to Jerusalem, sacked the city, destroyed the temple, made a puppet out of the last king of Judah, and then carried God's people off away from the promised land into captivity for 70 years. So if you were alive in this time, if you were among God's people, it would have been a very dark time. It would have looked like that the promises that God had made perhaps had failed. Because it certainly looked like that David's throne had been kind of cut. His descendants, well, who is the king? Well, there wasn't one. It looked like perhaps his line had been extinguished. It was a dark time. And so sometimes we realize that faith struggles in the dark. So that's the context of the second half of Psalm 89. The last few verses of the psalm has Ethan's faith looking for answers. Using the same language as Habakkuk, he actually says, How long, O Lord? in verse 46. But in this case, he's not asking, How long will it be until you judge your people? He is saying, How long will it be until you're going to be gracious again to your people? Where are your former loving kindnesses, which you swore to David in your faithfulness? I think there's a palpable sense of confusion, disappointment, and profound disillusionment. And here's why. Ethan's experience was not matching up with his theology. His theology, we saw in the first half of Psalm 89, was spot on. It was wonderful. But now he's looking around at the circumstances of the people of God. They appeared to be very bad, and they were experientially very bad. And it just didn't add up. He didn't understand. So let's take a step back and consider what really was at the root of these changed perspectives of these two men. You've probably picked up on this already. But Asaph's, thinking back to Psalm 73, Asaph's initial position was focused on his circumstances. He was looking at how his life appeared relative to the prosperity of the others around him. And that perspective changed when he went to worship, when he went into the sanctuary. Now, again, I think he must have received some sort of revelation from God when he went to worship. Maybe it was simply reading the scripture that he received the revelation. Maybe it was something directly that he received from the Lord. But however it was conveyed, I think that certainly God's absolute truth changed Asaph's outlook and perspective. He stopped judging based on how things appeared to be, and he accepted the truth of how God revealed things to be. And then on the other hand, Ethan, who had begun so well, his initial outlook was based on God's revealed word. It was based exactly on God's promises from 2 Samuel chapter 7. But what lay behind his change in outlook, his change in perspective, Well, in a similar way, he then started to look at circumstances, looking around at what's happening to the people of God, how things appeared to be, and they were bad. And so I think Ethan's faith struggled because he couldn't see the solution in this circumstance. Again, because based on what he saw, it didn't add up to what he knew about God. Now, I don't think Ethan's faith ultimately failed, I don't think he was really accusing God of wrongdoing or really accusing God of breaking his promises. But that's how things appear to him to be. That's how it looked. And of course, we know that we have the benefit being on this side of the cross. Because as Derek Kidner says, quote, the problems of the latter half of Psalm 89 cry out for the gospel's answer, end quote. Because in the fullness of time, yes, God's people would learn that all of God's promises are yes, and they are amen in Jesus Christ. 
But can this also be a lesson to us? Maybe a hard lesson or at least a hard lesson to put into practice. Because whenever we're faced with adversity or disillusionment or confusion or pain, we need to be looking not at our circumstances, but on God's revealed Word, His Scripture. Because there we will always find the right outlook, the right perspective, and we will find that God is faithful even in the dark. Or maybe another way to say it is that we should not think that when it goes ill with us, that God is not still being good to us. Finally, let's briefly explore, as we've been thinking throughout the survey, of Jesus Christ being the sum and substance of the Psalms. How is it that Jesus could lead us in praying or singing Psalm 73 or Psalm 89? First of all, thinking about 73, remember that moment when Asaph's perspective was just beginning to change. Um, We talked about his responsibility that he had as a leader among God's people, not to lead his people astray. He knew that, like we said, that if his perspective had remained what it was, he would have betrayed a generation of Israel's children. And I think that is to say that Asaph's faith played an important role among the people of God. And that's, truth, that's true for all of the leaders in God's people in the church. Our leader's faith plays an important role for the people of God. When it's exercised well, it can embolden and encourage us. And when it's not exercised well, it can lead people astray. So then now think of Jesus, who the author of the Hebrews says was the author and perfecter of our faith, the pioneer of our faith, as it were, leading the way, charting the course. And importantly, think of how Jesus' faith never faltered, even in the midst of great evil around him. We know that Jesus was chastened far more than Asaph ever was. And of course, Jesus' faith never failed. Jesus never doubted that his Father wasn't good to him. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, we're placing our faith in the one whose faith is unbreakable and unshakable. And as a result, our faith can also be unbreakable and unshakable, even when there might be great evil around us. And then... How might Jesus lead us in Psalm 89? Well, we realize, of course, Jesus was the answer to all of Ethan's perplexing questions. Again, Derek Kidner says, quote, All of his unanswerable questions were to have undreamt of and unquestionable answers, end quote. Yes, there was a long period of darkness in Israel's history, followed by an even longer period of silence, But we know that eventually, in God's timing, the silence was broken and a light did dawn. Think about these words from the prophet Isaiah. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And I'm going to interrupt the quotation just for us to remember Again, the context of Psalm 89 talking about the fact that where is the king? Where is God's faithfulness to his king? Well, Isaiah reminds us there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it with righteousness from then on and forevermore. And we know that Isaiah was pointing to Jesus Christ, who is our king forever and ever. So he's not only our king, he's also our pioneer, the author of our faith, and it is his faithfulness that's guaranteed all the promises of God's covenant so that we can enjoy God's goodness in our lives under his reign and his rule even when there is darkness around us. So Dexter's going to come, find your handout. We're going to sing Psalm 89, We're going to sing from the first half of it, not the second half. Go ahead and stand while we sing.
Thank you, Nathan. Um, I'll just give you a, a second to look at the lyrics quick before we read them. Uh, I just want to point out, if you look for words like loving kindness, forever, faithfulness, and covenant, you'll see them repeated over and over as Nathan already pointed out to us in the first half of the psalm. The tune is, uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Sing with me. The loving kindness of the... Oh, <laughs> ever I will sing your faithfulness to every age my mouth in song shall bring i will proclaim your steadfast love forever will endure your faithfulness in heaven sure you will establish sure I've made a covenant with him who is my chosen one. To David, who my servant is, what I have sworn be done. Your seed I will establish firm forever to endure. And I, through every coming age, will make your throne secure. The praises of your wonders, Lord, the heaven shall express. In counsel of the holy ones, your faithfulness confess. For who in heaven with the Lord could ever be compared? Among the ranks of angels great, who has his likeness shared? Father, we um, confess that we are often envious of the wicked. We are often looking at our own circumstances and forgetting your covenant faithful promises to us. So, Father, would you forgive us? Would you forgive me for forgetting the goodness that you have promised to us, uh, even when we suffer? And Father, would you remind us that all things work together for good for those who love you, who are called according to your purpose? Would you not allow us to continue, uh, Father, in our sinful state of looking at our circumstances, but would you point us to Christ, keep our eyes fixed on Christ, that we would remember um, the curse that he bore for us, that we could be forgiven, and that now all things work together for good, and that all your promises are yes and amen in Christ. So, Father, we pray in his name. Amen.